chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. For those that are visiting, we have been going through the book of Revelation for several months. And we've made it to chapter 12. This is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Revelation uh, because it holds so many keys to the rest of prophecy. If you compare Revelation chapter 12 with many other passages in the Bible about the last days, all the way from uh, Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah, through to uh, Matthew and 2 Thessalonians, you really begin to see a pattern, and, and a lot of these um, cryptic passages about the things to come begin to bec- become clear. And uh, Revelation 12 holds a lot of keys to the rest of prophecy. So we're going to spend some time comparing Scripture with Scripture, so be on your toes this morning. Before I begin, let me just say, as we were singing those two hymns, I was thinking, uh, you know, there's no greater way to make the devil mad than to sing those kind of songs from the heart. And I trust that as you sang them, you really meant them, you really thought about them. I know whom I have believed. To sing with confidence about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done, I'll tell you, that that riles the devil. To see blood-bought people singing their praises to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, the other, my Redeemer. I will sing of my Redeemer. Praise God. We're going to talk about that a little bit. You'll understand why that uh, struck me as we go through this passage this morning. Because we have here, really, an overview, if you will, of the career, as it's often called, of the devil. Pretty much his life's history, if you want to put it that way. And with it, uh, we get a good handle on the history of the earth. And what life is all about, in fact. A lot of big questions are answered in this chapter. Now, normally we go verse by verse, but because this passage has uh, some, some sections that are sort of out of sync, it's going to be easier to read the whole thing. At first, you may be a little confused, although we have alluded to this passage several times already, so I think you should generally understand most of it. But then we'll go back and uh, we'll explain what it all means. So we'll read it through with one reading here beginning in verse 1. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God, day and night, has been cast down. 
And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You feel pretty comfortable with that? Yeah? I hear some laughs. I see a lot of nods. We've covered most of this, really. Uh, if you remember, we covered a lot of it when we first began the series because it ties so many things together. But I'm not going to assume anything. We're going to step through it so we really understand exactly what's here. We're going to support it with Scripture. And really, we should feel so privileged to be able to sit here and read right here in a book of things that are going to happen. That's incredible. God has revealed to us things to come. And let me tell you, because He said they're going to happen, they're going to happen. There's nothing that's going to stop these events from taking place. We have uh, three main personages, characters, if you will, in this chapter. So to begin to understand it, let's first of all find out who they are. So the first step in understanding this chapter is to say, who are the characters in it? And we're going to uh, bootstrap our ways backwards through it because the easiest one is already identified for us, if you notice that. By the way, the three characters are the dragon, the male child, and the woman, right? You got that? The easiest one to identify is the dragon because we're told who he is in verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. Okay? So, the dragon, later he's called the serpent, in, toward the end of the chapter, is the devil. Got that? Now, the next most easiest is the male child. It's a little cryptic when we begin there, but then we get the key in verse 5. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's support that with Scripture. Look at chapter 19. Just flip to the right a little bit. Verse 15. We're not going to read the whole passage, but this is clearly describing the Lord Jesus Christ when He returns visibly. And in verse 15, talking about the Lord Jesus, Now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it He should strike the nations, and He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So there is the clincher. That's describing the Lord Jesus. Same phrase. You believe that? You with me? Okay. So the male child here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the last person to identify, of course, then, is the woman. Well, we have some clues. It says she's the one that gave birth to the Lord Jesus. And in spite of the Catholic Church wanting to tell you that this is Mary, no. This is not Mary. We have some clues here, uh, particularly verse 1. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Have we ever seen that symbol before? The sun, the moon, and twelve stars. 
You're nodding your head. The answer is no. We've seen the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. <laughs> I'm only pulling your leg. It, it is. It's in Genesis 37. And it is the sun, moon, and 11 stars. Remember, it was the dream of Joseph. Joseph had a dream. First, he had two dreams, actually. The first one, he saw the sheaves bowing down to him. Remember that? Then the second dream was he saw the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. And, of course, the sun and the moon represented who? His parents, that's right, Jacob and, and Rachel. And the 11 stars represented his brother. Well, here we have 12. So it's not talking about Joseph here. It's talking about, first, Jacob and uh, Rachel, his wife. There's a picture. Jacob renamed Israel, right? He's em emblematic of the nation of Israel. Well, then, after that, the 12 stars is, again, a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? You believe me? <laughs> so this is, this is the nation of Israel. It'll become more clear now as we look at other passages that this is clearly the nation of Israel. So, we have the dragon is the devil, the male child is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the woman is the nation of Israel. Now, having established that, let's, let's read through it now and try to understand what the events are. 1 and 2, the great sign, we read that. Then verse 2, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain, to give birth. This is talking about just before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then God stops the narrative, and he's going to do this several times in this passage, to kind of, okay, now let's introduce another character here before we continue with the events. And he brings on the devil. Now, we're not going to do a thorough discussion of this. We're going to get more into this uh, idea of the seven heads and the, and the uh, ten horns and then the crowns and so on in chapters 13, 17, and a few other places. But let me just introduce it now, because this is significant in regard to the end times. Verse 3, when it described the devil, notice, it said that he had seven heads and ten horns. Sounds a little strange when you think about it. He's got seven heads and seven, remember what that number is a picture of? What is it? Completion. That's right. Seven days God created the heavens and the earth and so on. But he's got ten horns. So, you'd think he'd have seven, if he's going to have a horn on each head, he'd have seven heads and seven horns, but he got three extras. We're going, to, we're going to read about that when we get into Daniel. But I want you to notice the recurring thread of this one who has seven heads and ten horns, because it's used not only to describe the devil, but to describe his man as well. It's kind of a key to use to realize, ah, this is who God, God is talking about now. This is the devil working through the Antichrist. Okay, whenever you see that. For example, look at chapter 13. Verse 1. We'll, we'll get to this when we pick the Revelation up again, Lord willing, uh, in a few months. But uh, here, he's talking about two characters in chapter 13. One is a political figure. Uh, it's the Antichrist. And the other is a religious figure who ends up directing worship to the Antichrist. Okay? That's all I'm going to tell you right now. But verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having, notice, seven heads and ten horns. There it is again. And on his horns, ten crowns, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now, uh, we'll just read on. Look at uh, verse 5. He was given a mouth, speaking great things, 
and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue, look at this key, for 42 months. We've, we've learned that number by now, haven't we? It's the length of what? The Great Tribulation, that's right. The second half of the seven years, that is the last seven years of planet Earth, before the Lord Jesus Christ takes up his reign, praise God, in Jerusalem for a thousand years, which we're drawing very close to, by the way. Three and a half years. We see that number in many ways in the Bible. It's uh, half of seven, right? You kids that are learning fractions, half of seven is what? It sounded like adults to me. Okay. <laughs> are you helping the kids out? Three and a half, right. We see it other ways. A time and times and half a time. A time, one. Times, pay attention now, up here. And times is two more. One plus two is? You can do fractions, but you can't do whole integers. A time and times. One and two. Three. And half a time. There it is again, three and a half. Years. Prophetic years. Now, we talked about that when we went through Daniel 9. Three and a half times 360, if that's the length of a prophetic year, is how many? Got you on that one. 1260. Okay, we've seen that number and we'll see it again. And finally, it's described as three and a half times 12 months, which is how many months? How many? Very good, 42, and that's what we have here. Okay? Isn't this neat how God has these? It's like a mystery. He has these little clues kind of hidden, you know, everywhere. But then when you begin to put them all together, you begin to see this very... We don't, we don't know all the details, just as it wasn't understood that... The Messiah was the Son of God who was going to come and die for our sins. But after it happened, you could look at the Scripture and say, Oh, obviously. And that's the way it is about His second coming. There are some things we can understand, but the others we have to plainly say it's not clear what that is. But this, this period of three and a half years, it being the last part of the history of planet Earth, is very clear. And it's during that time that many things are happening. That is when the judgments that we saw... Uh, that we've seen so far, the seals, the trumpets, and pretty soon the bowls will take place. That's when the Antichrist really reveals himself for who he is, the man of the devil. And I'm, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. We'll look at that in a minute. But it's also uh, the time when he, through the Antichrist, goes after Israel big time, particularly believing Israel. Because remember, God is doing a lot of things in this last seven and then three and a half years. And besides judging the earth, the other thing is he's finishing with the nation of Israel what he started so long ago. And at last, they're going to look on him whom they have pierced, and they're going to mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Isn't that great? God is so great. He didn't give up on them, and he's going to finish what he started. Uh, real quickly, because this might tie together, when we get into these chapters, you'll use it as a key when we get there. Chapter 17, verse 3. Chapters 17 and 18 are the judgment of Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great represents the apostate church, which we're full of right now. The church in the world, generally speaking, we said this before, is abandoned the Bible and really has become an industry to entertain people. They jokingly talk about talking heads like me. You, know, you don't get people over there with a dry book and just talk to people... Uh, like a lecturer, we have to have slideshows and, and uh, music and drama plays and so on. 
So people go home entertained. So really the, the church is a long way down the road of apostatizing already. But during the last seven years, it's going to become a worldwide organization of abandoning God, abandoning the Bible. And halfway through it, when Satan reveals his true colors, he's going to put a stop to that. And he's going to replace it with a new religion. Wonderful religion. It's going to be worship of the devil. Worship of himself. And at that point, uh, the apostate church is judged. And here in chapter 7, ver- 17, verse 3, I just want you to notice this one verse. He would, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. There it is again. You see, the devil again is behind all this. Now, uh, I'd like to, uh, I'd love to go through several prophets in the Old Testament. We're just going to look at one, and that's Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, in the Old Testament. Chapter 7. Daniel is unique in many ways. One of them is, he gives us a handle on how to fit uh, a lot of these characters into the flow of history because he actually talks about great empires. For example, with the great statue, it's really a picture of the four great empires that uh, ruled the earth during his time and a little after his time. And so are the four great beasts of chapter 7. We'll just pick up on the Uh, third beast here in chapter 6. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, we're going to really give you the test. Anybody know who the leopard is a picture of what empire that is? Very good. Yes, that's exactly right. The Greek empire founded by Alexander in about 333 B.C. And a leopard is an appropriate picture for God to use to picture that empire because unlike any others, Alexander just swept across the civilized world at that time in, in just a few years and conquered the whole world. It took Rome a long time. But he, he just swept right across like a leopard. And he's carnivorous, of course. Each of these is a carnivorous animal because they devour, they consume the other nations around them. Okay, after this, I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast. This is beast number four. And behold, uh, pardon me, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. We've got a few keys here. I don't know if you noticed them to tie in with other passages. That's why I read an extra verse in chapter 13. One of the characteristics of the Antichrist mentioned in Matthew, in 2 Thessalonians, several times in Revelation, is his speech. He speaks blasphemous things, great things about himself and against God. Okay? And here, this little horn, here's the key. One of the trademarks of him is that he has a mouth speaking pompous words or literally great things. So let's make a note. This might be talking about the Antichrist. Okay? Now, 
little break here, a little parenthesis. In this vision, Daniel then sees in verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. So he's introducing here the Lord Jesus Christ in a vision. When he finishes, he picks up now the horn, the little horn in verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. He's talking about the destruction of the four empires. By the, by the way, the fourth beast symbolizes what? That's right, the Roman Empire. Slower than the Greek Empire in taking over the world, but much uh, more uh, brutal. You notice the description of it? Slow, deliberate, you know, crunch, crunch, crunch. That's kind of the picture you got there. And finally, and it ruled the world for four, five, six hundred years. A very mighty empire. Now, out of this empire, there's this one person called the Little Horn who speaks blasphemous things who is going to arise. He's going to rise out of that empire. Okay? Bear with me. Uh, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Who's that? Who? The Lord Jesus Christ, right, at His second coming. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. He comes to the Father, the Father gives him all things. And now we're talking about, we've jumped ahead, we're talking about the end times here, clearly, aren't we? His visible return, when he comes to take the throne at last. Well, if we were left with that, we might have a lot of difficulty with this horn, except uh, Daniel was a curious guy. I would be too, if I saw these things. And it troubled him. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now be careful. Many Christians, when they see the word saints, who do you think of usually? The church. Be careful. We're not in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the church is a hidden thing, remember. So when you see saints, the word simply means holy ones. He's talking here, he's talking to Daniel, a Jew, about Israel. He's talking here about believing Jews. God's holy ones. And in particular, during the end times. Remember, Israel is going to be the predominant character uh, as far as God's dealing with, uh, with nations in the end times. Uh, okay, we're going to keep going. It'll become clearer here because Daniel uh, is really persistent in his uh, curiosity. Verse 19, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and about the other horns which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. 
I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, the holy ones, the believing Jews in the end times, and prevailing against them until the ancient of days came. When is the Lord Jesus coming back? Right after the great tribulation. Right. And the judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Right there we're talking about 200 B.C. through about three or 400 A.D. The Roman Empire, as we know it, that we learn about in our history books. Now, big break here. We're going to jump ahead many thousands of years. And we've seen this. God does it all over the place in prophecy. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, a trademark of Antichrist. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High. We saw that in Revelation 12. We're going to look at it again. He's going to go after believing Israel big time. And shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand. And he's going to literally slaughter believing Jews wholesale. For a time and times and half a time. There's the clincher. There it is again. There's that three and a half years. The last time. God calls it the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. When the nation of Israel is going to suffer tremendously at the hands of the devil like it's never before. And yet God is going to be glorified because they are going to turn to him in droves. As he says in Romans, all Israel shall be saved. Uh, we'll finish up. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And there's the millennium beginning right after the Great Tribulation. Okay? Did you follow that? Isn't that neat? This is written 600 years before Jesus Christ. Revelation was almost written 100 years after. 700 years a span. And yet the threads all go together and fit. Now, we'll go back to Revelation. We'll finish going through the passage here. And we understand again the significance, remember, where the Lord Jesus quoted Matthew, uh, pardon me, Daniel 9, and he said, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple, what did he say? Basically, get out of there, because that's the beginning, you see, of the persecution, big time, of the Antichrist against Israel. That's why he said, don't, don't even go back for your coat, just go. And you wonder, well, how are they going to uh, be taken care of? What are they going to eat? And we find out here, you see, God takes care of them in a special way. Revelation 12. And uh, we left off. Now, that was all a, a uh, uh, bunny path from verse 3. We're going to come back now and pick up in verse 4. His, that is the dragon's tail, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, there's not a lot of agreement on exactly what that represents. I'll tell you what I personally believe. I think this is talking about the fall of Satan and those who followed him for a couple of reasons. The stars represent angels often in the Bible. Uh, for example, in the creation in Job, 
said when the uh, sons of when the stars of the morning shouted for joy. Uh, several times in the book of Revelation, stars represent angels. And with his tail means they're following him. That's Take it for what it's worth. Others uh, believe it's when he is actually kicked out of heaven, which we're going to see here in a moment. But it's like it's jumping ahead and then back in time. That's why I don't really agree with that interpretation. It's not really important. So just don't be dogmatic about it. Okay. Anyway, here we understand this. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was, it was born. Isn't that incredible? You get this picture. Remember, this is not Mary. This is the nation of Israel. I'll tell you, the devil knows the Scripture better than any believer who ever lived. He knew, the, he knew the prophecies that God made about someone who was to come. He knew God had a plan. He knew there was one who was going to come from God to that nation. Every Jew knew that. And he knew God had a plan. And whatever it was, it's the devil's business. He makes it his business to thwart God in what he is doing. And so it's like, okay, I've narrowed it down. I know this nation, someone's going to come out of this nation. And God is going to use this, this one to do something, and I'm going to stop it. And so you can just you see him watching and waiting for this one who's been promised to come, waiting for century after century, you know. <clears throat> and finally says, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. He came. And, of course, the devil did everything he could. Remember, after the Lord Jesus was born, the devil used a man to try to eradicate what God had done already. Remember what that was? Who was the man? Herod, that's right. Herod the Great. Who, imagine this. Who had all the children under two years old killed in that whole area in order to try to get to this promised one, to stop God's plan, whatever it was. And I have a feeling he was just as mystified as the prophets were when they read the Scriptures. Because when they read the Scriptures, they saw these two uh, pictures of this one who was to come. This ruling and glory uh, forever and ever on the throne of David. And yet, there's something about suffering. And they couldn't put the two together. And neither could the devil. He didn't understand that. And I believe, like most of the prophets, he went toward the side of, oh, he's coming to rule. He has to because he's coming from God. And that's what the Jews thought. And I think that's what the devil thought. And so his plan was to thwart that, to uh, keep Jesus down and keep him from uh, taking his throne the way God would have intended it. He couldn't destroy him because God had him evacuated to Egypt, remember? In, in destroying the infants. And so, we don't know how many other times God tried to get to the Lord Jesus and, and uh, take him off on a side path, detour him, if you will. But we know uh, certainly of one instance, and that was the temptation in the wilderness. God the Son. No, no, he knows who it is. Better than anybody knows. He knows his creator. But he's a man. And he doesn't understand that. He's dealing with someone who is in his nature. He's one person, but who has two natures. He's fully God and he's fully man. And he doesn't understand that. I'm sure he wondered, why is he doing this? And because he has a human nature, he's used to human nature. He knows what to do there. Right? You know? Hit him at a point of weakness. 
and I got them in my back pocket. And so he waits until Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights when he's the weakest and says, turn these stones into bread. Perfect. I've got them now. You know. And of course, he didn't know who he was dealing with. The Lord Jesus Christ had only one thing and that was to please his Father. And he said, no. Man won't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Boy, what a, what a wonderful Savior. He went all the way through. His last attempt was to offer him all the kingdoms of the world because he knew that's what he was ultimately supposed to get. So if he can get it this way, he knows that's going to thwart God's plan if he receives it from the devil's hand. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, said, you shall love the Lord your God and serve him only. Isn't that good? Every time he answered with a heart that wanted to serve the Father only. No, the devil did not understand this, brothers and sisters, which uh, most people don't understand. Not only did the Lord Jesus not sin, he could not sin. And the devil didn't understand that. There was nothing in him. Boy, I wish I was like that. For the devil to get a hold on. He's got a lot of stuff in me. And the Lord Jesus said triumphantly toward the end of his ministry, the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. There's nothing. No tendency to sin at all. Pure. Now we're going to jump ahead um, because it says, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, what's that talking about? The ascension. That's right. So we close out that little chapter there of the Lord Jesus and in, in the devil. Now, verse 6 is going to jump way ahead. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. This is, we're talking about the tribulation here. This is the great tribulation. The period is, there's our magic number, 1,260. Three and a half for prophetic years of 360 days each. And isn't it great? Notice this, it says that she has a place prepared by God. What does that remind you of? I thought of John 14. I go away and prepare a place for you. Isn't this neat? God has a place prepared when this moment comes, when the Antichrist comes out and goes after Israel big time, God has already got a place prepared for the nation to flee to. Now, it says um, the wilderness. And we're going to talk about this more because it's going to come up again. Generally, when we think wilderness, we think of like, you know, Nevada or something, right? Or, I don't know, or maybe a jungle place or something. Often in the Bible, the wilderness, Old and New Testament, is talking about a very particular area down near the Dead Sea at the bottom of the Jordan River, which is so desolate. It's arid. There's no, hardly any plants there at all. Big cliffs with uh, caves in them. That's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls up in a cave in a big barren rock cliff. That's where Masada is. You've seen pictures of Masada. It's just a big rock. It's barren, hot, you know, very difficult to survive there. If that is indeed what God is talking about, about, then that is where Israel will flee when they flee the efforts of the devil through the Antichrist. Now, it may well be just a, a desert-like place. We don't know. But we'll talk about that in a minute. So, the bottom line is God takes care of the nation of Israel for those three and a half years when the devil goes after the nation. Now, we're going to focus on the devil and find out something that we didn't know before. We learned from the books of Isaiah and, and, and Ezekiel how the devil began his career as the opposer of God when he lifted up his uh, heart in pride. Here we find the closing chapter, or pretty close to it, before he's thrown into the the bottomless pit. Because there's a war that's going to take place. Verse 7, in heaven. Imagine that. 
Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. And the bottom line is the devil loses. We shouldn't be surprised. And now he is kicked out of heaven, never to have access again. Now, a lot of people are surprised. They say, I didn't know the devil had access to heaven. Well, sure he does. God is permitting it. And there's a, a wonderful insight into it. Turn back to Job. That's the book before Psalms in the Old Testament. Because we see this taking place. And we see the devil's behavior. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Notice the questions of God, by the way, in the Bible. God's a great questioner. Here, notice the answer of the devil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. I want you to notice that. Does he tell him anything? No. It's a real cocky, uh, you know, if he's going to answer, but if he's going to answer, he's not going to tell him anything. It's a sing-song kind of an answer. It's almost like a, a child's mock. While the Lord keeps up the conversation, he brings up someone, a man named Job. And he says, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. This, this irritates the devil to know, and he hates it when someone loves the Lord just for who he is. He hates that, like when we were singing earlier. Someone who gives God all the glory. And so, he, uh, Satan's response is a classic. Oh, does Job fear God for nothing? And he begins to say, well, this is the reason he uh, likes you so much, because of all the stuff you give him. He says, you take away the stuff, and he'll curse you to your face. So God takes him up on the challenge. And you know the story, of course, what, what God permits. And just for a moment, put yourself in Job's shoes. All he knows is all these catastrophes come on him all of a sudden. He doesn't realize that behind this is an exchange between the devil himself and God. And in it also is God's confidence, so to speak, in Job and his love for the Lord. And of course, God knew his heart. And, and this is where some of the greatest statements in the midst of adversity, come from are Job's own lips, right? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Isn't that great? God giveth and God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Man. And you can just see Satan just getting so mad. You know? Notice again, after his first attempt, uh, the devil uh, returns. And uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, the Lord said to Satan, he asked him the same question, from where do you come? Notice the devil's answer. Same thing, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Nothing. He's like a little kid. Now, don't get me wrong. He's a great being. The greatest, probably, and most beautiful being that God ever created. But he acts toward God here like a little child in mocking God. Well, you know the rest of the story that the next thing he says, well, let me put, you, you've taken his possessions away. Let me put my hand on his person, his health. You know, then he'll really give in. Just a little, okay, that's good. That's all we wanted. Just a little insight into Satan and his, yes, he does have access to heaven. And here in this chapter in Revelation 12, come back there now, he's called the accuser of the brethren. There he was. He loves to do that. You know, every time you and I sin, boy, he loves to point that out. You, he's your child. She's your child. Look what she just did. How can you tolerate that? You're a holy God. 
Don't you hate sin? You just hear it. Well, he loses the battle. He's cast out. And I, I cannot understand. We, I don't think we really grasp the relief and the joy that there is in heaven when he can no longer come up there anymore. Well, I'll tell you, they are, they are so happy. They're not going to see this guy anymore or his followers ever again. And so, no doubt, that's the reason for verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Notice this. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. How uh, are these ones and how are believers here able to overcome Satan? You know, the devil can go before God and say, you know, look at Rick. Look what he did. That's sin, pure and simple. And you said that the soul that sins must die. And God has such an argument to answer him with that settles the issue. Because he says, you're exactly right. I'm a holy God and I hate sin. And there is a penalty that needs to be paid for that. And the Lord Jesus Christ holds out his hands as evidence. It's it's eternal evidence. The scars are there forever. And he says, there's the penalty right there. It's paid in full. Justice has been served. Isn't that great? What, What can the devil say at that point? He's silenced. You see, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Not by being really good people, but by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and nothing else, you see. He hates that. He hates that song that we're going to join in and singing. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Nothing to me, everything to him. You see, that's one thing the devil never understood about God. And that's his great love. I'll tell you, we'll finish up the story of of the devil opposing Jesus in his ministry because when it came to the cross, he finally thought he had him. He failed in in the wilderness. It says he departed him for a season, so we know he came back again. We don't know if we have all the recorded instances. I don't think we do. I think there were other times when he tried to do something. But finally, I think he thought he'd won. Here he is, the promised one of God, being led away, a crown of thorns, bleeding and bruised. You can't even recognize his face. We know the devil was behind it because it says after supper, the devil having put it into Judas's heart to betray him. That was the devil. He'd done it and he was dancing a jig. Imagine how, how he must have just rejoiced as he saw his nails being pounded into his hands and his own creatures are mocking him, spitting in his face. Don't you think he was rejoicing? He had no concept of the love of God, you see. He didn't understand God. And there is so much glory that goes to God because God used that <laughs> to beat the devil. He used the devil's own tool of what he thought was victory. Let's quote Hebrews. Who through the power of death destroyed, pardon me, who through death destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. That says God used that death itself to beat Satan. Because by dying, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered for your sins and mine. And he legitimately, justly opened the doors of heaven so that sinners could go in forgiven. Isn't that great? You see, he didn't use a bazooka on the devil. He didn't use a tank. He didn't use a nuclear bomb. He didn't hit him head to head. He spread out his hands in submission, received the nails, and then received my sins and yours and the punishment from God. 
and satisfy justice and beat the devil at his own game. Man, that's so great. And that's what eternity is going to be all about, praising the Lamb for what he's done. So, the devil doesn't give up. Uh, He knows now what's happened, and it's too late. He can't undo it. So the next thing he's going to do, of course, brothers and sisters, and remember this, is, is to try to stop us where we are. We're his, we're his chief enemies, being the ones who can carry this message to the world. Okay, so uh, the heavens are rejoicing. Back to Revelation chapter 12. And this is an awesome verse here in, in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Wow. And the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. See, he knows the scripture. If he's not eavesdropping here, he's only one place one time. I doubt if he came to Calvary Bible Chapel this morning, but he's somewhere. There are certainly demons here listening in on this, and they've known long before we have that, yeah, he's got three and a half years at this point. He knows that. And instead of breaking, instead of repenting, he, uh, like a little kid who, who wants his way and refuses to, to say, I was wrong, is going to use that time to stir up as much trouble as he can to oppose God right down to the bitter end. And in verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, you see, that's the middle of the tribulation. And it's interesting that at the moment the devil is cast out of heaven, that is when the Antichrist breaks the treaty with Israel, you see. It's like he really comes into the Antichrist and takes him over. And he just goes after Israel like nobody's business. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And here is the, the, uh, the commentary, really, back on verse 6. Verses uh, 13 through 17 explain what verse 6 said. She was given two wings of a great eagle. Some people speculate that they were airlifted. I don't, they'll be airlifted. We don't know. It, it could be just saying that they quickly got out of there so fast that the devil couldn't get to them that she might fly, and here's that word again, into the wilderness to her place again. That place is the place that God prepared, where she is nourished, not for 1260 days like in verse 6, but this time for a time and times and half a time. There it is again. Isn't that great? I love these things in the Bible. From the presence of the serpent. Now, boy, you're going to see all kinds of speculation and commentaries on these verses. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged. All he does is get madder when he loses. You know, he doesn't give in. He gets angry. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And, of course, that may include the 144,000, which we'll pick up in, verse, in chapter 14. But he's just not going to let up. He can't get to the nation of Israel that's harbored by God in the wilderness and protected and nourished by God. And so he goes after the ones, apparently, that are elsewhere. And, of course, there's great persecution on believing Jews. Now, this flood, I believe it's a literal flood. Remember, we said that. When we go through Revelation, unless it says like or as, take it literally. And so it's a flood. I believe that. It's water. In fact, it says water, right? Verse 15, spewed water out of his mouth. Like a flood after the woman. It says like a flood, but then it says the flood to carry her away. It's a literal flood, a lot of water. And people have speculated on everything from this being figurative of just some big inundation of an army, like a flood. But Yeah, probably that because it says water. 
to um, somehow damming up, and I don't know how they're going to do this, but damming up the Euphrates or something in Iraq, and I don't know, diverting the water down to Israel. If you see the hundreds of miles you're talking about there, I don't know how in the world that would happen. But this is one of the things we'll know when it happens. Now, I haven't done this often when I've preached the Revelation, so I'm going to speculate now, okay? Is that okay? I, I don't do this, and when I do it, I make it clear, this is sheer speculation. All right? That's why I brought my maps. A lot of people don't know this, but uh, do you know where the lowest point on the surface of the earth is? Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, down at the bottom of Israel. You recognize that, right? I brought this particular map because it has elevations color-coded, and that's why I want you to see this. Here's the Dead Sea. This is down at the bottom. This is the Jordan River going up here, right? This is the lowest point on the surface of the earth. The surface of the Dead Sea. You know what its elevation is? People are surprised when they're here. It's 1,260 feet below sea level. That's, <laughs> that's down there. And in fact, all the way up through the Jordan uh, River, it's well below sea level. In fact, if you get up to... The Sea of Galilee. Okay, let me fold it this way. Okay, you should all, you recognize that, huh? The Sea of Galilee up here? Here's the Jordan River going down. If we had another map, it would fit down here. The Dead Sea's down here, right? Now, this is color-coded elevation again, and it should look strange to you because white is below sea level. Or some of it is. Now, this just means that it's near sea level, but this is all below sea level here. In fact, the Sea of Galilee itself is 400 feet still. Pardon me, 600 feet below sea level. That's, that's pretty deep, isn't it? Isn't that weird? There's no other place like this. Now, there's a, a little, if you see this white here, really, this, there are not a lot of heights in here. I think the highest it gets is like 100 feet from the ocean to here where you're about 800 feet below sea level. If it were possible to breach this, and there are a lot of low points in here, swamps and so on, I tell you, you'd have the ocean rushing in here like nobody's business. And it would just gush down here right into the wilderness. The wilderness is that area around the Dead Sea down there. And if you're anywhere below sea level, I mean, you're just going to get swamped. Now, this is sheer speculation. Okay? Isn't that interesting, though? That the devil's going to go after... Israel in the wilderness, down here, if that is indeed where it is, with a flood. And what better way to do it? The final interesting thing about this is that this plain right here in the middle is the plain of Megiddo. Do you recognize that name? Do you recognize the name Armageddon? That's what it's taken from. This is where Armageddon, the great battle at the end of the tribulation, is going to take place. And... If, you know, if this were to happen, if God were to somehow circumvent the flood in this area, I could see a great battle uh, trying to open it up somehow. I don't know. Sure speculation. Okay? So I'll go out of here now dogmatically preaching that, God, that the devil's going to make a way to the Mediterranean to flood out Israel in the end times. Okay. Bottom line is here, we've, let's, let's make an application. You can see what pride can do here in the devil. Uh, to begin with, he sought his own promotion, his own prosperity, and in the end, he's only going to gain his destruction. 
Proverbs 16 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. He has, uh, through his deception, got many, in fact, most of the world to follow him. People do not come to Jesus Christ for the same reason. Pride. They would rather govern themselves than have the Lord Jesus do it. They would rather be number one than have Jesus be number one. Really, it's that simple. Because if you saw the people in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, they're all saying, worthy is the Lamb. He's, he's it. When you come to Jesus Christ, you're saying, He's everything. I'm the sinner. I'm nothing. He's the one that's done it all. Where are you in that scene? Is pride keeping you from the Lord Jesus Christ? Use this, this passage here to have a little insight into what pride can do. I'll tell you, the, the devil's going to fight to the end, even though he's a loser. What a senseless fight. Better to give in. It's only right to begin with to come to Jesus Christ and acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. It's the only sensible thing to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that once You have said it, Lord, that settles it. That it's all going to happen just as You said it would. And we thank You, Lord, for the last chapter when you will return, Lord Jesus, visibly, every eye will see you. You said it. And every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Lord, we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day when things will be right at last with your creation, when you will be ruling. And Lord, we pray for anyone here who is not ready for that day, who still is the governor of their own lives. We pray that while it's still the day of salvation, they might turn to you and acknowledge you now, bow the knee now, as Lord and Savior. We do ask it in your precious name. Amen.